This episode brought to you by BRE Promotions. Whether you're just starting out or evolving your brand, BRE Promotions offers you expertly crafted disruptions that'll take you to the next level. BRE Promotions, we make your business shine. Visit us at brepromotions.com to schedule your free consultation. author of Peace of Britain, a speaker and field investigator. I'm also currently working on a, a TV series under the same name, Peace of Britain, and a new podcast, Peace Series, featuring low-key interviews with researchers around the world. I'm also continuing my passion for writing about cryptids and other place animals in other parts of the world. Uh, my new Beast of Britain map is currently out, and I'm also working on uh, my next book, Beast of North America, and Welcome to the Goblin Universe. Hello again, folks, and welcome to another edition of Inside the Goblin Universe. My name is Ronald Murphy, and I'm here with my co-host, Mr. Brian Bowden. Yes. How are you tonight, Ron? It's it's been a while, Brian, since we've been together. Well, we've been together, but not on the air, and there's a lot of good reasons behind it. So we've got a lot of interesting things some of us can announce, and some of us are waiting for certain things to take place before announcing. But we're working on a lot of stuff uh, for big screen, little screen, uh, paperback books, um, and digital. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. So I I guess we should tell the audience, unless they thought there was some sort of rift in our relationship, uh, you and I have actually been working pretty close nonstop uh, oh, yes. since October. Whenever you came to uh, yeah, to Western Pennsylvania and started to film a Canadian series with me, uh, we did several episodes for that in Western right. Pennsylvania. So we've been working nonstop. Uh, we're working on a book together. Uh, plus, you're, you're you're crafting one of my books I've already written. <laughs> so we have a lot of stuff going on, my friend. It's not like we have any kind of of separation. It's not like we are estranged from each other. We're working constantly in tandem. It's just that you and I getting on the air has been very difficult to do because for those folks, folks who don't know, putting together a podcast, that's, it's, it's hard business. It's, it's, it's dramatically hard business. And if you combine that with uh, your Brady bunch that you have and my little mini bunch that I have, it just, you know, the daily constraints of life are killing us alone. Uh, but but I want right. to use this as a moment. If anybody's out there that wants to sell a product and wants to sponsor the show and gloriously compensate Ron and I for having their advertisement on the show, please contact us at questions at insidethegoblinuniverse.com. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. That would actually keep me. I would, I would quit my daytime job and just do this full time. That's what we would do. But Brian, yep. but Brian, the yes. reason why I brought it up, that reason why that it's been such a long time, is that you know you still do uh, the addition, the addition of Inside the Goblin Universe. I'm just like never there because I'm always doing other things. <laughs> but you and I together, I, I could not think of a guest that I would want to do more together, you and I, than our friend, our brother from another mother from across the pond, <laughs> Mr. Andy McGrath. I could not think of a better person to have <laughs> on the show I. together. Yes, he, he is he's in there right now. Andy, you are on the phone with us now, aren't you? I I am. I'm. I'm here. I'm listening to this. This wonderful flowing banter. It's Python-esque in every <laughs> every single aspect. Um, and we want your liver, Andy. Death of Terry Jones. You know, I'm. Oh. A, 
I'm uh, I'm mourning. I'm mourning uh, for all Brits out there, all Python fans out there at the moment. So to hear that kind of banter just fills me full of joy, and I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, well, not only was uh, Mr. Jones a great comedian, uh, but he was also a very learned scholar of, of the of the Middle Ages and, and classical uh, history. Um, and he put it together in such a way that it was uh, uh, quite immediate. And it was also something that you could um, uh, connect with. You know, the way that he was able to merge entertainment and history, really one of the best out there. So if, if you only know him from Monty Python, you're really only seeing, uh, you know, the dark side of the moon with him because you have to see him talk about history as well. Right. He's very oh, he learned. amazing. Yep. Oh, he really, yeah, he really was. And especially things about the Crusades and, and medieval times. Um, oh, he did more than that. He, he's got the, the Ancient Inventions program and uh, another one, uh, Barbarians, I think. Yeah, he was fantastic, but more significantly, he was Welsh, and I'm from Wales. Oh, so ah. my love of him is is Ooh. deeper than just his... It, it's the love of, of brothers, as it were, from other mothers, <laughs> or, or the same mother <laughs> in this case. Um, yeah. and, although I don't have the accent, that's, that's Wales, Cardiff and Wales is where I grew up and uh, lived much of my life until I came to London. And uh, yeah, so he's gone and we're, you know, uh, ever so sad. Yes, yeah. we're, we're all mourning. But uh, yeah, go ahead, Brian, go Brian. Well, unfortunately, I mean, this is what happens and, and these people, it's now that as we get older, the people that we grew up with laughing and, and, and enjoying and emulating um, they're a lot older than us and unfortunately they're going to be uh, uh, going to uh, the uh, region where God exists if you so believe in God um, he is I believe a brother of ours or mine um, and my Welsh connection is I had Welsh terriers so other than that <laughs> I had a lot of Welsh terriers growing up my dad had like six women in my apartment but, it, but it, it, I mean like you can't beat what they were doing and that's what we try to do on this show i mean you look there's a lot of seriousness in the paranormal um and then there's a lot of silliness in the paranormal and we try to bring you a little bit of everything we want to make it entertaining it's all about entertaining if you're going to waste your time um listening to something might as well come out with a laugh and and some more knowledge so that's what we do on inside the god oh yeah universe. Yeah, and you know, every now and then I try to fl uh, slip in a few uh, uh, full frontal nudity as well, too, just to make it yes. an overall aspect. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I just, just, just a whole, 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 you, you mentioned, well, now I have a, because I always ask um, people that I admire, you know, how did you get your start in the field? And what's unique is that you're from a place in, in Britain that's, you know, one of these really, uh, you know, rather isolated places. You know, people from America, the only thing that we really know about Wells is that one of cultural has a name from there and that most of your things cannot be pronounced by the human tongue. That's the only thing that we know about Wells. No, no, but, and what, uh, there's a third, Ron. There's a third. Merlin is from Wales. Oh, well, that, well yeah, you have a great uh, Arthurian legends from that area. Yes. Absolutely. That's a good point, Brian. That's, that's for another show. That's for another show. Yes. But, yes. But, but whenever you, you were growing up there, uh, did you have an interest in cryptids? And was that something that was discussed? Because a boy, uh, whenever I was growing up in the, in the 70s and early 80s, we had things like In Search Of, and you know, Bigfoot was part of our American vernacular. Growing up in Wells, what was it like? What, what kind of things did you investigate? What really got you um, curious about the world of the unexplained? 
Well, it's like most people of my age. I'm mean, uh, 44 almost now. Most people of my age saw the In Search of series. They saw the Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World. They uh, they saw all of these wonderful programs of the 70s. But it was really the Nessie footage, Robert Rines and his team going down there. And those pictures that came out uh, during that time period that really piqued my interest. I must have been a child, but I think maybe around... 12 or 13 years of age, I just started to take a, a real interest in sightings. And I would collect sightings, and newspaper clippings then, of course, you know, we didn't have computers, and um, just keep them and, and review them. And they'd spread out from from uh, places like uh, the UK to the rest of the world. Got interested in things like Champ and Ogopogo and Paddy and Bigfoot and all these different things. And it just fascinated me that they could be animals out there that we didn't know about you know of course the discovery of the coelacanth or in retrospect looking back on that was a big thing as well because there was this animal that was supposed to be extinct and and yet it was still living and in reasonable numbers and known by the locals as well um and that was a fascinating thing to me you know because i was a considered as a child that the world was already explored and discovered and today with things like google earth and, and mapping we might think this uh, satellite mapping might think this more than ever but um being more <laughs> being more clear about my answer you know, we have a dragon on our flag ron and brian we have yep. a red dragon on our national flag um as like goch meaning the red dragon uh, in wales and that's really enough <laughs> <laughs> that's really enough to to set anybody on the path of um of encrypted research it's it's on your national flag every day and welsh people are completely they're very very nationalistic there are welsh flags and symbols of the dragon everywhere in wales that you go on all of the major buildings flags on on top of the building on schools on um, there's carvings on you know um on the, on the sides of castles and things like this. So it really was, just seemed very natural. <laughs> that would be interesting mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because I got a chance to study in, in England and Scotland for a while back, uh, whenever I was in graduate school, a lot of people don't understand that you have pubs over there that are a thousand years older than this country is. You know, people don't yep. understand <laughs> yes. the history yes, that is there. Real. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 you know, of course, I write and I research uh, from things from a historical perspective. And I always point out, you know, one of my, my mantras is that nothing exists in a vacuum. And we talk about the Nessie sightings. You know, if we go back and we see the reports of St. Columba, which really kind of spurred all this stuff on whenever he spotted some sort of something in the river nest, you know, so we show, we, we, we have that, but then you said about, you know, the draconian type of, uh, uh, mythology as well. And then England has uh, a wealth of, of unicorn mythology. You have a Bigfoot like character called the wood That's part of the church architecture. Right. You have right. mermaids that's showing up. So England is one of these places that is almost like a melting pot, you know, an old world melting pot of various different types of mythologies and different types of influences from, you know, the, the Near East and the Far East and everything just merging into this one area. It makes it very, very unique. So it had to been a great place as a kid to grow up. Um, how old were you whenever you first laid eyes on uh, Loch Ness? 
If when I if first visited Loch Ness, or um, yes, yes, yes. Oh when yes, first course, no, I, I actually I never ever visited Loch Ness until um, I was quite a bit older. Uh, I went down my honeymoon in 2012. That was the first oh. time I ever stepped foot there. Um, I've been to lots of other lakes uh, around the UK, um, in Wales especially, where there were some alleged uh, lake monsters, but never ever got to Loch Ness. I don't know why. I don't know why I didn't go there. Um, but yeah, it did that well. It was 2012, yeah. and it was the first time. We've been there three times now. And it's kind of a strange Loch Ness because you expect it. This is a, an area that sees 250,000 plus tourists every year. The local population is very low. Now, apart from the, the local city of Inverness, around the loch, the, the most populated town is Fort Augustus, which has 600 residents, year-round residents. Yes. That's the largest population center around Loch Ness. And mm. it's a very, very underpopulated area. So even though it's very touristy, it's it's very um, uh, highly visited every year. What you actually find when you go there and it comes to night and you step out towards the loch, it's actually pristine. It's still black. You know, the skyline That's is right. still black. It's a it's a black sky, uh, dark sky as they call them, dark sky area. It's beautiful. It's amazing, and you can start to imagine how something could actually live there. So it's a very surprising area. Obviously, it's built on tourism, but in a very Scottish way. So they don't really go all out about it. <laughs> they just give you the basic means right. to get along, and uh, you know you right. do the rest yourself. But it's great boat tours. Yeah. And it, it's the my favorite thing about it was actually walking down the Caledonian Canal to the other lochs, to Loch Oich mm. and Loch, um, um, uh, Loch Lochy, uh, along the, the River Oich and, and so on and so forth. You can walk there in about five or six hours, I guess, um, or going up to the hills and you can walk the Great Glen Highway, which is 70 miles. You can walk it. There's paths there. It's completely heavily forested. It's a beautiful area. Scotland, wonderful. Scotland the brave. Um, definitely, you know, possibly home to a wealth of undiscovered animals um you know, what's, yeah, what's I, great about that that these towns are so small and intimate is that they really do know when things are out of place so i mean it's it's more noticeable in a I, I've, I've always learned it's more noticeable in a smaller town um even though they have two hundred fifty thousand people coming in they know when things are not right or something's missing or something's wrong so when you get these reports from people who are local i think there's a lot more to it than if you get your your tourist report um saying oh i yeah. saw something in the water yeah okay you're a tourist move on but um and and, and and the fun part is because i'm sure the attitude is oh that's just you know that's the seahorse and the sea creature and you know leave it alone type of thing well i'm not entirely sure about that these days because actually a lot of the residents around loch ness have have moved there over the years for the tourism or, or because it's a beautiful area to live you actually meet a lot of english people and people from other parts of the world in and around the area um one thing that's quite interesting about it um actually is they're in a bit of an odd position in that they're their livelihood depends upon stories of the monster and yet you know the stories have to be genuine as well so there's you know there's a bit of a mixed bag the kind of sightings from locals i would be very interested in i, I have been in the past when they've been made is one that's made after 50 years of habitation around the lock without seeing anything you've never reported anything in 50 years of some of the high heady times of Loch Ness research and then suddenly now you think you've seen something well that's really valid that's really strong 
yes. in my opinion. It's, it's a strange wave movement. Going up to the hills and overlooking Loch Ness, what I notice every time the, um, oh, I forget which one it's called, one of the Loch Ness tall boats, a very big one, every time it would move out from Fort Augustus into the loch, the um, the waves, the bow waves hitting the shore would hit the shore for about 20 minutes long after the boat had disappeared. And I thought, well, look at that. That would be very conspicuous if I arrived shortly after the boat disappeared from sight. And at that point, yep. and then saw this big wave move across. And, you know, you can understand how people going and really looking for something could possibly mistake that for, for a creature, especially if they came at the end of it. But there are so many head and neck sightings. There's so many mm-hmm. massive hump sightings moving around. I know that uh, with the eDNA test, it came back possibly giant eels. I think that was Professor Gemmell's, you know, it was like, okay, you've given me this massive amount of publicity for my new uh, DNA department and my eDNA testing. Thank you, Loch Ness. We didn't find anything, <laughs> but let me throw you this giant eel thing to just right. pacify all the followers and keep your tourism going. Right. We know that there's no eel in in the in um, biological history with that kind of uh, anatomical makeup that can hold its head out of the water, head and neck, or that can it would have massive humps, you know, five, six feet apart, right. four feet out of the water. The discovery of such a thing would be even more astonishing than finding, you know, a thought to be uh, extinct creature somehow surviving on in some of the waters of the world. That there was some eel that we never discovered that was just huge and uh, some uh, ghostly anatomical um, uh, monster imposter, you know, of, uh, right. yep. of, in my opinion, yep. something like a plesiosaur. You're making a valid point because what we're asking now is for us to break the rules of established science and say that there's an eel out there that is, is somehow different than all the other ones rather than yes. believing there might be a cryptid in there. You know, that, that is, and that's really exactly. the way science uh, tends to be. Um, it's yep. interesting because about three years ago, Brian and I on Inside the Godwin Universe, we interviewed the uh, author Steve Alton, who, uh, who wrote, um, oh, you know, uh, who wrote The Meg. But he also wrote a book about 20 years ago called Love The Walk, which I, yeah. I remember buying and reading it. Got and it, yeah. isn't it interesting that the, 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 the monster in that walk happens to be a giant uh, eel? Yes. Yeah, see, yeah. See, so, yeah, I'm thinking there might be something going it's, on there. It's, it's uh, the but, closest you can get to, to you know, like giving some kind of validity to it possibly being there. I mean, yeah, can, can eels become rather large i think so but not yes. not the size we're talking about when you talk about nessie or you talk about champ or Pogo. i mean we're talking about something that's more on the pleosaurus the brontosaurus type of like it's a large creature large you know? i mean right. yeah. in five meters some of the yeah. sightings of five meters yeah. And, 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 and the neck, and the neck, and you know, yeah, it's funny. Um, recently, I, I found it. I got an article, and I actually I, I chimed in. And I asked Andy about it because a skeleton appeared on the shores oh, yes. of Loch Ness. And and if you just take it by some of the photos, the classic photos of, of Nessie with the two little horns coming out from the top of the head, this had that. Um, some people are saying it's a whale. I didn't know that there was that many whale in the loch. Um, no, but it's not in Loch Ness. It's um, it's. I I think it's off the coast near Strathspey. Let me just open it again. Oh. Now, around that area, um, around that area, 
they always reference Loch Ness when they report stuff up there. Now, there's been actually this past year or so, there's been a right. lot of uh, whale beaches or wash ups or carcasses or fatalities yes. around the coast of Britain. We don't know why. Even in the River Thames, yes. there's been three whales in the last three or four months actually washed up as far as Battersea Bridge in the river. Now, that's really Oh, my fine. goodness, yeah. Really far. Wow. And there was a say whale, a juvenile say whale, just about a month ago that was washed up into um, Battersea Bridge. So there must be some, they're following some food source in or something's happening with the tides and they're getting lost. There was also a, a sperm whale that was spotted off the coast of um, just uh, off the end of the test, uh, Thames Estuary or towards the coast there, a juvenile sperm whale uh, about two, three weeks ago. And then they found that that's dead as well. And uh, it gone to, you know, for the kind of food that it eats, we don't have it down here in the English Channel. It come down and starved by the looks of it and not found its way out. And you know, there's a great, um, there's actually a great service here um, where they'll actually go and, and find the animal and do an autopsy uh, on warships like whales and things like that and see what happened. You know, which is really fantastic. Wow, they'll, that's they'll wow. give you the. I posted it on my Beast of Britain page, and they'll open the animal up and see what happened. Is, is you know, is it lodged with plastic? Is, is it caught on fishing wire? Did something happen? Was it diseased, or did it just get lost and, and well, starve? We had Benny the Beluga whale that was living uh, near Gravesend in the Thames Estuary for six months, nice. practically. Well, you, and you, it just you know, swam down, and eventually it left and said, "Okay, the food's done. I'm leaving." Well, <laughs> something that's very interesting I want to throw throw out there is um, some of the things I, I, I watch on Earth changes and 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 different events that take place globally, and something that's been recently happening. There's these um, in the Doppler radar when you look at it, it's a lot of these weather maps. Um, it's recently been caught these like radio waves or waves coming out of nowhere, and it just takes a, f a few a moment to go from uh, the west coast to the east coast i've seen a lot of this in the atlantic and mid-atlantic large um out of the blue signals coming in that are not normally and they're getting caught on this radar so maybe there is something taking place on a, a military scale um they're testing something they're testing weaponry from space or from from the air even from the sea and um they're go you know i mean the, i think the navy in, in on the west coast was supposed to do run a test where where they got the blip from where the last time they ran this supersonic uh, test audio test um, whales and, and animals beached themselves all over I mean there was a massive uh, loss of, of animal so this could be taking place in that area and it could be just driving them directly into like, like what's that we got to get away from it running away so there could be well, a valid reason on that I think that's very plausible, getting you sonar, and perhaps there are certain frequencies that can interfere with their, um, you know, the, the way that they they travel, they they guidance. I suppose right. not really, um, very knowledgeable about cytology, but yeah, I do know sometimes they just get a bit lost, or they they get into an area that's that's deep and there's good feeding, and then suddenly there's all the sandbanks and the tide goes out, and you know, they just get stuck basically. Um, so. <laughs> Aberdeenshire coastline. That's where this, this carcass um, washed up. Now, the thing is, is that and Marcus Hemmler, who does, um, he does a whole blog, a German guy, a whole blog on uh, carcasses and washups and does an investigation. And he's very, very skeptical. And I, I don't always agree with everything he says because he's a hyper skeptical, but he is very knowledgeable about 
um, and shark and whale anatomy. And he said, well, actually, there was a, a mink whale that was spotted, dead mink whale, late last year in this area. And then we've just had this big storm, KR, that's come through. And suddenly, you know, here's this big whale carcass on the beach. The papers here, they tend to you know, really latch onto stories like this, especially wash-ups. I've seen ones that are very clearly whales um, washing up in certain areas of the country. And, of course, we're an island, so you get wash-ups all over the place. And uh, somebody like the Daily Mail, in this case, will just say, okay, well... Loch Ness monster, perhaps you know. <laughs> even the article we let's, shared about it. Yeah, let's sell about more the papers. Sightings of the Loch Ness monster last year, <laughs> but this is nowhere near. Oh, well, it's not far away from Loch Ness, but it's you know, it's it's actually in the sea. It's on the coast, the Aberdeenshire. Well, you, so we're talking about a completely different area. Something that's very interesting, we, and Ron and I've had discussions about this before because Ron does, did this whole thing on sea monsters on the um, mm-hmm. uh, the Great Lakes, and um, one of the oh, wow, really? I've, oh, it's a it's a it's a fantastic book. It's coming with a new cover. <laughs> it's one of them okay. I'm, I'm actually working on. Um, but one of the theories I've, I've had over the years, and again, I'm not a, 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 a learned scientist, you know, studying this over and over again. I, it's a hobby of mine, and I'm very interested in a lot of different sciences. I've studied some of them, but the, the, the plausibility of maybe there being um, an underwater channel or cavern which connects Loch Ness to um, Champ, you know, to the lake, to where Ogopogo is. I mean, this could be the same creature and it's just traveling a waterway from point A to point B to point C. And, you know, very rarely do you ever, I don't think we've ever heard of a sighting you know, in the same time, same day, same, you know, in two different locations. Um, but it would be very interesting to keep tabs on if they do have another sighting over in, in Loch Ness, how many days it takes until there's a sighting in, in uh, Lake Champlain and, you know, where Ogopogo is and see if, if that, you know, there is a plausibility of it traveling back and forth. But then it would only have to be one, far right. more likely that it would be a population uh, inhabiting very similar bodies of water, especially across the Northern Hemisphere. We know there are a lot of sightings across the Northern Hemisphere, even though there are elsewhere in the world too, but primarily there. Um, there's some of these places connect to the sea. What about the Hudson River? Doesn't that connect uh, Champlain to the sea? It's right around right um, my back door right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, wow, it's amazing. And yeah. I mean, look, uh, Loch Ness is connected to the sea on both sides. It's just not a very direct or easy journey, but it can be made. Um you know, with some of the other and certain, of, uh, yeah, certain dolphins get in there, seals get in there, so we know the that they're all, exactly. absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Right, and, and that's um, a great food really source for them too, right? That would be a great food source if we're thinking that such a large creature has to have a huge food source. So they well, have to be big... feasting on, on on possibly seal, possibly dolphin, um, But and I'm not necessarily saying it's one creature, but, I'm, uh, uh, you know, there could, unless it becomes over time uh, by... You know, science takes over, biology takes over and becomes asexual, which I doubt. Um, you know, I'm sure there's more than just one if this creature does exist. It has to be because yeah. you have to procreate. Yes, and there have been sightings in other places around the UK as well. That I still um, reference the, the book for a lot of people, which is it's a really must-buy, which is Sea Serpents and Lake Monsters of the British Isles by Paul Harrison. 
and it's a fantastically researched book. Now, he's quite skeptical about it. He's in with the giant eel theory, but he doesn't really put that across in the book. He just gives you the sightings around the coasts and in the bodies of water within the UK uh, of all these similar types of creatures that have been spotted over the years. Now, his book, I think, came out in 2001 or two. It's not been updated since. But up to that point, it's a great research source because he's just really he's just giving you the stories he's not making you know any assertions at all and he covers you know, england scotland ireland wales and gives you the, the background of all of them it's really really amazing to see what's there and what you see around the coast of scotland actually um as well as many other places in the uk is that there's been a long history of you know, messy type monsters being spotted all over the place, and also even in uh, Loch Linnea, which is just at the end of of Loch Ness, as you as you would come out into the you know, sea loch, I suppose, eventually. Now, you know, a lot of skeptics make very good points that there are various hydrodams and different sort of diversions uh, from Loch Ness to the sea along the route. It's not exactly uninterrupted, but. Um, if we're talking about an amphibious animal, and when you walk there, I walked along uh, the River Oich, uh, almost to Loch Oich, and what I, I, by the time I was walking back, it, it was getting dark. There were no lights anywhere. I had to use my head torch to see the path in front of me for the next two hours. It's black. So if so, and I looked, I walked down to the River Oich, which was, you know, it's adjacent to the Caledonian Canal. It's about, I suppose, about 30 feet between them. And I thought, if something was in this river right now, I would not see it, even if I could hear it. It was that black. I couldn't see something that was before my eyes. And that's the area. People don't understand just how rural, just how black it is. There is nobody about. So if something was able to make such a journey, like the seals do from time to time, then it would be possible. And that's, you know, that's, I, I think, for me, I used to say... Uh, Nessie is a seasonal visitor, and I think I was perhaps wrong about that. That maybe, you know, Nessie occasionally makes its way out to the sea and back for whatever reason, or these types of creatures into the adjoining locks of Gary and Loch Lochy and Loch Who knows? But they have been seen there. So, you know, what could the creatures be? They look like places sores. Right. Um, but we can't say that they are because that goes against you know all uh, scientific um, all the scientific paradigms of our time. And you mentioned something very important, Ron. You said that they have to put a, an implausible stand-in in the place of it, which becomes more believable than the thing itself. So. Um, <laughs> Roland Watson, which is a guy you should read, he says that's called the my theory sucks the least theory, which is like, (laughs) I'm sure there's no such thing as an eel that's 40 feet in length with such, uh, you know, such wild and random anatomy as that. But it beats the theory that a prehistoric surviving plesiosaur is living in Loch Ness. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, whenever whenever I researched my uh, Lake Monster book, um, and it took it took a while to research it, but you know, when we talk about Loch Ness or we talk about the lochs in Ireland or the ones in the United States, even the Great Lakes, you know, we're talking about Lake Champlain or any of the Great Lakes. They were all formed at around the same geological time. We're talking about, you know, 14,000 years ago, the end of the Great Ice Age, whenever all this ocean water kind of rushed in. And, you know, one of my theories is 
that if you look around England, especially, you know, the coast around Devon, England, whenever you have so many plesiosaur fossils there, you know, that is like yes. the haven, you know, the first, the first holotype of the plesiosaur. Yeah, exactly right. Um, I mean, is it possible that in the Ice Age Sea, there were still remnant population of plesiosaurs, and whenever the water rushed in, these things went in with them into various parts of the world, mm-hmm. and some of them are able to survive in remnant populations? I mean, that is a theory that I proposed. Mm-hmm. It's not very far-fetched. We're talking about something living in to, you know, you know, 65 million years past whenever they thought they were going to be extinct, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they are extinct, because we're talking about the open oceans here. We're talking about something totally different than a um, than an environment that is uh, that is controlled by other factors. You know, the ocean environment is something that you can pretty well... Um, look, we still have sea turtles. You know, we still have alligators and crocodiles existing. Oh, Things did. Yeah, things things survived the uh, the extinction. Um, so, is it possible that there were still things around the coast of North America and Europe that, whenever this happened, it allowed a waterway in, uh, and they just simply came and went? And through time, they either became isolated in these areas, or as we had you know talked about as well too, do they continually go out to the sea every now and then, back and forth? I mean, these are all very plausible type of scenarios, you know, and it, it, it from from a scientific perspective, I don't want to sit here and say definitely that there are still remnant populations of prehistoric animals yeah. out there. But also, we know that there are, though, right? We know that the Architeuthis exist. We know that the mm. Coelacanth exists. We know mm. that things that are supposed to not be there are indeed there. Well, we're finding stuff, and I, I totally agree with that, Ron, by the way. And um, I, I've started saying to myself, because I realized that my assertions in the past were displaying my beliefs in the sense, and of course, belief is is, is a poor stand-in for evidence. And um, But I started saying, if the sightings that people are reporting are to be believed, then there is a relic population of places so like animals surviving around the world, if they're to be believed. Um, and of course, there's the argument that Nessie, uh, the Nessie craze in the 30s onwards actually led to this uh, adaptation of everybody believing they're seeing plesiosaur like animals so when they make a description they describe a plesiosaur in the same way as um, there was a crazy guy that used to keep contacting me and he would make up this sort of alien information type of um, this higher peoples that were that were that were um, communing with him and tell me about them this guy was in his late 60s and what I noticed about the names that he gave them and um, the, the forms that he gave them it was very sort of 60s influences you know flying sources little green men um, council of nine all that kind of stuff um, yep, yep yep and I thought what you're actually showing in your lives actually is is the era in which you grew up in. Because if you grew up in this era now, you would be making a completely different lies. <laughs> because our you're, minds you're, have changed about the way we, 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 we think these things look now. They'd be little gray men. That's right. Exactly, which is the reason why I like to look at the historical record. And what do we do about the evidence uh, suggested by St. Columba? What do we do with that? You know, there was somebody swimming and he was attacked by this, this, this creature. And of course, you know, there's not any kind of real truce, uh, you know, um, suggestion of what we're talking about, but it was obviously an animal that could be seen and it's an animal that, that, that could somehow interact with people even in a very hostile point. Uh, so 
I, if we look at the record, and not only uh, uh, an oral record, but also around the walk, there are the, the, the this, this rock art. It's it's not ancient rock art. We're talking about the Pictish, the Pictish yes. people, which is definitely into historical period. Um, but um, they have uh, you know carvings of something that looks like you know for lack of a better word, a plesiosaur type creature, a long neck creature, you know, um, and these kind of, these kind of beings, these kind of water dwelling creatures, these, you know, for the, for the Vikings, you have water dwelling worms that were these kind of like aquatic dragon creatures, you know? So we look at the archeological record and we look at world traditions and, you know, it's been part of the world, a part of that world. It's been part of native American, uh, lore as well too. Whenever we talk about the Great Lakes, so this is just not something that happened at a snap of a finger and say that the surgeon's photo is what brought this on. Because there has been a lineage of these kind of reports in these areas of these lakes, you know, for for, for thousands of years. And, and well, that's true. Um, yeah, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to talk ahead. over you, but to add on to that, you've got to take in consideration the time and the time frame when these are being reported and written down and put into stone. You know, it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to get famous from this or I'm going to make money off of this. Uh, I don't believe people were thinking of that. You know, it was basically an existence type of thing, especially the uh, the, the indigenous people. Um, you know, it was just like, hey, we, you know, be careful. There's something in that lake or there's something in that water. It looks like this. So, it, in this day and age, if someone does that, uh, okay, what's the angle? You know, did, did the Daily Mirror, you know, pay you off or what yes. have you? Yes. Yeah, and that's what you? And that's what you have to worry about. Well, there was a sighting that um, was made by a military historian, Ricky Phillips, in at the end of 2018. And there was a, it was nicknamed Bikasaurus. It looked like this long neck with a sort of beaky head sticking out of the water. And I was in contact with him and I went up to the mouth of the River Oi, January 2019, to investigate it. Great expense. And um, found nothing. And he was going to meet me and he had the flu and all the rest of it. And, you know, these things go on. I thought, that's fine. You know, the guy's respected military historian and, well, you know, why would he make it up? And sure enough, you know, two months later, it pops up on somebody's page that they found at the, the yeah, one of the crumble down bridges further up the River Oi, there's this metallic you know, a rigging of some kind sticking out of the water. It's very obvious what it is. He couldn't have seen it and not mistaking it. So you know, people do get into this uh, these days, this whole hoax phenomenon, whether to promote themselves or to just get a little extra cash for a newspaper short. You know, it's not much, a couple of hundred pounds, I'm guessing. Um, or just for attention. Who knows why? Um, and of course, there are some mistaken identity cases like Ricky's. Um, uh, you know, open, close parenthesis. So um, it's just one of these strange things. But in a historical sense, you know, when they were the water horses or the, the Kelpies, sure, there's a lot of superstition and folklore involved in it. But in that period onwards, to claim that you saw, um, you know, a strange animal was actually to lose your reputation. You didn't mm. grow in reputation because you saw it. You were considered strange, even by uh, ancient <laughs> yeah. standards, with a strange kind right. of village that you know was hitting the, the communion wine too hard. And, <laughs> you know, um, He's uh, a so very religious man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, right. those, yeah, of course. Yeah, you were touched by fairies or something like that. You know, you were That's you were somehow. Fairies. 
Yes, exactly. So, uh, yeah, so whenever we hear these reports, this was something that people weren't going to be commonly spouting about the town because they felt themselves that they were either cursed or set apart because of this. Uh, and maybe it was rather ominous as well, too, and maybe this yes. is not something to talk oh, about. Um, but, yep, yeah, yeah. Now, before we shift, uh, shift gears here, I want to ask you one question about the surgeon's photo. What is your take on the surgeon's photo, my friend? Well... <laughs> For a long time, I believe it was real. Um, there is a second photo that comes along with it. You know, so first of all, the surgeon photo is cropped. There's an uncropped version, which you can see from a distance, looks much more plausible. And there's a second photo that was discovered much later, um, which goes along with it, where the neck is is uh, it's slightly blurred and the neck is bent down towards the water. Of course, that could have also been achieved in a false way. Now, the whole Marmaduke whether all sort of. Um, uh, and his nephew enacting, exacting a revenge upon the Daily Mail uh, for discovering his hoax with the hippo foot uh, seems very plausible, to be honest with you, at the time. But there's something about it, the respect doctor thing, that the, the Harley Street doctor, I worked on Harley Street for 10 years, and uh, just under 10 years, and it's, um, you know, doctors, even today's world, they don't really want to, they don't want to put their name to that kind of nonsense exactly. you know you've got a, a private practice in Harley Street and next thing you know you're you're going to front this photo to the world you know um, mm. for whatever gain I mean doctors made good money even back then especially on Harley Street in, in central London so why would they for any reason whatsoever put themselves in that position that's the way I try to think about the plausibility especially being in that industry for a while um, but then you know who's to judge the mind of the individual it's hard to say Right. It, it is yeah. now. Yeah, you brought up about. Oh, sorry, Bob, let, let me just. Let, I just want to because I lose my train of thought because I'm getting old now. <laughs> but as soon as, you, as, as soon as you hit fifty, the check engine light comes on in your body. Oh, so I, I, I got to stay on pass. <laughs> right, um, yeah. Uh, so uh, so this is the thing. Um, the second surgeon's photo that that very few people talk about, the uncropped one, you can actually see the far shore in this picture, yes. and that is my whole problem with this. That this was indeed a fake photograph. Yeah, And this was just a little model toy sub. And I've been to Loch Ness, and I know that it's an imposing piece of water. Yeah. How in the heck were you able to show the far shore and this neck and partial body out of the water at the same time? It makes no sense to me because of the scale, the scale alone. This thing had to, the deck alone had to be at least, in my opinion, in my humble say. opinion, yeah. At, at least five or seven feet out of the water because you wouldn't be able to see the waves in Loch Ness alone are three or four feet well, just rolling, you know what I mean? And um, and you do know what I mean because you've been there. But yes, yeah, no, my that's my whole yeah, that's my whole point, my whole argument that first of all, putting a little a little model in there would look like a little model because it, this isn't like putting it into a bathtub or, or a lake, a very calm lake. This is a, a rapidly, uh, constantly kinetic piece of uh, property up there. Um, now, I spoke with Warren Coleman at a conference, and um, I went through this whole uh, lengthy um, evolution of the Loch Ness Monster in people's minds. And talked about the surgeon's photo and everything, and then after I was done talking, he uh, 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 you know told the entire audience that 
everything that I had said was, you know, of course, a lie. You know, not that I was a liar, but I was actually um, taking in the general knowledge and uh-huh. kind of repeating it and kind of perpetrating a lie. And actually, the reason why the surgeon perpetrated this hoax was he was having an affair with a woman in London, and he had yes. to put his presence in Scotland so his wife didn't find out. Man, that I seems like that. a hell of a lot of work. It seems yes. like a big, a big, a big leap. I mean, you could have just got a friend to say that you spent the night together. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, and, and, on, and on top of that, if just consider the fact that if you were to build this model or whatever, you know, when this, these pictures were taken, uh, it, it, people are going to notice it. It's not like it's not a small model, you know. I mean, especially the, like I well, said they're before, they're going to know that it's, it's going to take place. Yeah, they're saying it's an off-the-shelf model. This is like something you just bought at a craft store. Like you store bought a toy submarine. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. And um, and it was just put on top of a toy submarine. Now, look, that particular period in Loch Ness history, you know, the newspaper guys were camped out. It was very busy. You know, it, there were had been a lot of sightings, and they were eager for anything that would sell. Uh, you know, hence Marmaduke Weatherall heading up there, this big game hunter, and, and uh, perpetrating his hoax with the, the the hippo ashtray footprint that he had indented into the lock side. Um, but um, it's just hard to say. And, uh, this doesn't only apply to Loch Ness then, but Loch Ness now, because the one thing that always really grabs at me with Loch Ness is what kind of objectivity can you have? in a place where everybody's livelihood depends upon the existence of a creature. Right. And I would talk to locals there, actually. They'll be very explicit about not believing in it. Quite a few will joke with you and say, oh, well, you know, sightings generally start around the start, the beginning of the tourist season. <laughs> so, um, you know, <laughs> so you know, there's that sort of mindset, that jokey mindset. And, of course, there's lots of skeptical people who are entrenched around a lot, like the Loch Ness Exhibition Center and Adrian Shine and all those guys who are decorating uh, who are very outwardly against the existence of the monster and yet still make a living from talking about it at that location. Right. So it's it's a prosperous place to be. But there's yep. it's too much. It's too, um, I can say, um, you know, it... The Loch Ness monster is like this. You know, um, you're on trial in court, and um, your mother's conducting your defense. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and saying, "I can vouch for him. He's a good boy." Trust yeah. me. I mean, it, it's, it's, <laughs> everything's it's very convenient. It's and very. That's right. Also, yeah. it, it's um. There's there's a vested interest. There's a conflict of interest. In the area itself, so I like to get out, get out to Loch Moraw, get out to Loch Lochy, Loch go to the others. In fact, there's thirty one thousand four hundred sixty six <laughs> lochs and lochs in Scotland. Plenty of places to go. Yes. Um, and just get away from the loch, and maybe even get a bit of peace in your in your monster hunt. You know, one of the things that I'd love to do if I was able to do it is, uh, I'd like, and this I think would work more so than they do it on land. I'd like to develop or have a waterproof cellular uh, game camera. 
and mm-hmm. I mean, a ton of them and just deploy them within the lock. So, you know, something that maybe on something that would charge it on mm-hmm. a solar ba- basis so you can keep it there for, for longer periods of time. And when something mm-hmm. passes by, it's snapping pictures. The difference between doing it in the lock, I don't think this creature would react to the UV lighting that, that's used um, within the, the actual unit. Whereas I, I do think because Sasquatch um, can see in the dark, they can see mm-hmm. just like if you take a picture of like those those baby camera lights with a, another camera you'll see how bright it is because it's on that wavelength so just imagine taking i don't know a thousand of these cellular uh, uh devices and planting them throughout the lock and just leaving them there um, well if you did do that Brian, the place to do it would be at the river mouth because well, yeah, a massive percentage of all sightings are at river mouth and i think it's because that's where the that's where the fish come into deep water and they're suddenly vulnerable come out of the rivers nearly all of the um sightings of the non midlock sightings are near river mouth villages in the villages as they call them you know, so that i would definitely put a bunch there and um and you know if we had the tech leave them there for, for a long time and see what we come up with especially I, if there's a salmon run going on or i, I think a, this a is trout of some kind and i think this is worthy of one of those uh fund go fund me type of things maybe i will try oh, yeah. to figure this out and go fund yes. me i don't know how much yeah. it costs, <laughs> but just think about you know they, they roughly run about three hundred dollars so you need about uh, you know, I'd like to have a bunch of them, but uh, if we can figure out a way to do this, I may just start looking into this, and we'll deploy them and and imagine. And just- you'd have to have them professionally put in as well, because the, the water can be, you know, can be can really rise there. And they'd have right. to be, they'd so, have to be stuck there and not come away. There are on some underwater cameras in certain uh, locations the Loch Ness. I'm thinking those, um, um, you know, like they do with the bu- uh, the buoys uh, throughout, uh, mm. you know, throughout oh, yeah. the coast. No, you know, you put it in there with yeah. something heavy. It it, it yeah. anchors it's down to the bottom you know, of course you have to get the depth perfect and, no, perfect. and if you put those in there first of all they're markers people can see them above above shore but then you could easily run wiring down to it the only thing i would mm. be worried a little bit about is the the signal waves and you know how it react and i don't want to get anybody upset with like you know oh, it's hurting the fish um but this would be a good project um to really i think that- I don't, but i don't want to ruin the you know the cottage industry that's you know I, that's not my goal or mission to to hurt the cottage industry there in people's livelihood um there's something well, something look, romantic yeah. about that whole theory right you know like like there really is yeah so we should do this it's a beautiful area you know just for ecotourism alone that's the place to go whether there's a monster or not it's worthy to be seen it's one of the most beautiful places on earth i've ever it been really is really really, yeah, and really I, yeah. I mean i think you would just enjoy walking around the place and i mean a lot of the lock you can't actually access on foot just by car uh, because of the way the road is cut into the hillside and mainly on one side of the, the lock as well um so a lot of it's actually obscured from view yep um which a lot of people and it's heavily forested you know along the banks uh, much of it so there's a lot of there's a, a lot of nooks and crannies and little places that people can kind of hang out. The whole area is, is worth a visit. But I'd say, you know, Scotland's a big place with lots of bodies of water. And if you do go to Loch Ness, have a look at a few of the others, especially Loch Morrow, um, where there has been a lot of monster sightings and it's very underpopulated. So uh, an enjoyable place to be. Yeah. One of my favorite places on earth. Truly is, truly is. Road trip, Ron. Road trip. We'll just hit Andy up when we get over there. And we'll see. Andy, I think that will be. We'll pick him up from, uh, yeah. from uh, you know, Heathrow or something closer to. My, my, hammock, <laughs> my hammock is back. I'm very close to Heathrow. My hammock is packed. Yep. I'm ready to go. 
Look, because time is so fluid whenever you're on the show with us, Andy, I do want to, I, I, we definitely have to talk about Bigfoot though. So uh, we're not going to get off. So Brian, if you need to uh, alert the network affiliates that we might be going a little bit long, you know, I think you might have to alert them, but uh, cause we have to talk about Bigfoot, you know, yes. this, this is going to go a little bit over an hour. Um, but so I, I do want to, to ask you about your thorough research into the field of, uh, of, of, of the, the, the British Bigfoot, shall we say, mm. what's going on with that? What, what have you found? You know? Well, you know, I've done a lot of work on this. I was championing the, the British Bigfoot theory for for many, many years, or several years when I first got, got into this professionally. And there's such a huge wealth of sightings that um, it just warranted real investigation, you know, real, uh, some real research into it. I've done a lot of field research into this, especially into the uh, phenomenon, uh, phenomenon blah, 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 of sticks and stones. <laughs> And um, especially the, the types of sticklings or stick huts or pinned arches or little glyphs that people are finding all through our forests, throughout our forests and claiming to be evidence of Bigfoot. Now, I've done a, a documentary with Chris Turner uh, about this at the moment called mm-hmm. Sticks and Stones. And um, I think that's its working title, should be released at the end of uh, Feb. And what we wanted to do is look at different locations to see if these stick signs were everywhere. And Scotland is actually a place that is very, um, it's very rural, it's very wild. And there's been a lot of alleged British Bigfoot sightings there. So we wanted to see, were these stick signs actually very um uh, very prolific next to uh, more prolific next to, to um, habitations and settlements, cities and towns, uh, and the forests around them, and not so prolific in very wild and empty uh, uh, areas, empty of people. So we did that, and when we went up to Scotland, one of the things we found, which was very very curious, was there were no stick signs anywhere in this massive park, Galloway Forest Park, four hundred square miles. Uh, no, 290, sorry, square miles, something like wow. 400 kilometers. Beautiful. We walked all over these great pine forests and, you know, it's deer and ticks everywhere. So you got to spray up. Mm-hmm. And um, we, I mean, the moss was about, the moss was about half a foot thick in some of these forests. It was wet. Wow. So much rain up there. It was beautiful. So beavers and, and different things, otters. So here we are in these forests and forest after forest after forest we did a few night investigations as well no stick signs no glyphs no sticklings no little teepees nothing why I'm thinking why not because there's no people in there because nobody wants to camp in a tick infested forest that's thick with right. and right. it was very like very very clear suddenly okay these are primarily most of what people are reporting and finding, not all, made by people. Bushcrafters, kids messing around in forests, hunters making little blinds. And these are why we see these things very close to human habitations, because there are people there. And they, people and kids and scouts and whoever go into the forest, and they make little stick things. Um, and so there was a not a joke, but a, a concept in it, like, you know, um, that we can't see the trees for the woods in the documentary. <laughs> and, you know, if you go into the forest looking for sticks, then, well, you are going to find sticks. It's a forest after all. And I'm not discounting the whole thing of um, 
if they're all you know bipedal hominids living within the forest of the world, then you know the sticks would become their tools and and their playthings. In many cases, we've seen chimpanzees and and other uh, primates using. Uh, um, tactically, strategically using uh, sticks and, and other implements uh, in their daily lives. But for this area of the world in Britain, I think it just kind of busted it wide open. You know, this is a feeder pill. You go into the forest, you're into Bigfoot. You say, look, the forest people are here again. Sticks, 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 TP, lean, strange glyph on the floor. Whereas forests you know they get windy they get wet they get stormy they fall and they crash and they make all kinds of different shapes and grow in funny ways and trees sometimes grow wrapped around other trees that they look knotted but it doesn't mean that some you know eight foot tall bipedal primate came in and did that uh, to tell other primates where it was or to tell us that it's about or these other yeah. things when you go into the forest and you, you put apples out or some sweets or something like that and you come back the next day and you say oh, they took gifting I'm habituating this site they took my apples <laughs> oh, there's plenty of things in the forest that like apples it's a leap yeah. it's all we're saying so it's not discounting it I still believe out of all of the sightings I reviewed I'd say there's a third of them that I believe very strongly in the witnesses and their testimony. Um, I mean, in in the sense of plausibility, it's not like I disbelieve the others, but they they're very plausible. The situation, the description, everything that happened in the third of the sightings says to me, I can't, um, I can't push this away. I can't disprove this through logic or reason. It has to have happened, or the person has to have believed that it happened in this way. So I'm still investigating. I'm still thinking it's a possibility. It could be here, but you know, it's taken a bit of a, a, a right turn in the meantime. And I've, I've got to you know go back and um, question my research. Can I be wrong? Of course. And that's what we're here for, right? Yes. Well, well actually, that's what I admire so much about you because uh, you know you are um, understandably skeptical. I mean, from a scientific perspective, you have to be because if you go into the woods and every time you go into the woods you hear something or you see something, there's really not much research being done. You know, you have to go in this with a plan, and you know, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. You know, that's just the way it goes. Mm, and, and, and I think, though, and one of the things that hurts me so badly concerning what's happened to you, um, because I, I do account us as friends, that you've got a lot of backlash over your talking, honest investigation, haven't you? Well, first of all, I got a terrible backlash about saying it was a possibility. <laughs> that was the first thing. Yeah. <laughs> and yes. I, got, right, right, right. Know, I suffered with that for at least, at least two and a half years in many, many areas of the community. You know, people were just laughing at me saying, this guy is, especially here in the UK, this guy is ridiculous. Look, look what he's claiming. And I was only really going by the witness sightings and saying it's not really my job to believe or disbelieve the witnesses. It's only my job to see whether it's plausible and whether I can go out and find any evidence of it. That's my only job because I'm not there. I can't tell the witness that they did or didn't see anything. I should believe them. And this is something that's very obviously wrong about what they're telling me and go out and investigate it. So I've got a lot of flack about that in the first place. And then towards the end of last year when I had a bit of a crisis of conscience with the whole thing was thinking of quitting and I said it just doesn't seem plausible that it's here to me I got an even bigger backlash 
yeah, yeah, that's the same. Yeah, so when everybody hates you, you're in a good place because you're on equal, you're on like level ground. Yes. Um, <laughs> you, you know what? I, I was very yeah. upset by the backlash and by sp- specific individuals that were you know, yes. trying to put it out there because we won't mention you, it. No, yeah. I'm not going to mention any names. Them, I'm, I'm not them, here. Them. I'm not here to take or attack sure. these individuals Thank publicly. You. It's it's it is my just opinion. But you, you know what? Um, we have a lot of people that are have been in this field for decades and they've written tons of books but frankly their experience is 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 no more than what you and i have um actually i probably have more experience than a lot of these other people and i think once you start becoming the celebrity and we're going to put the quotes in the celebrity um you have a certain audience that you're catering to and you have a fan base and you know you have to be the voice of reason when you really aren't um this is a creature that has yet to be discovered or found publicly by anybody yeah. that I'm aware of. Um, I'm sure our government is involved. There's plenty of governmental based stories on this, both in in, in the U.S. and globally, where they've either been rescued or they've detained the bodies. But in general, no one knows better than anybody else. Um, and to attack somebody on their theory is, is, is equivalent to how people felt Prior to this being uh, being allowed to come out in, in the open with a lot of this stuff without feeling the ridicule, you're just taking the other, you know, you're just doing what was done onto you, and it's wrong. We have to be more of adults yeah. about this, and you know something, <laughs> a true researcher takes everything into consideration. Yeah, and, and in that whole sort of period uh, last year, I mean, just to briefly explain, I won't go too much into anything at all. Yeah, there were some key characters from the beginning who had been quite vocal in their opposition to me, and I think their influence had sort of permeated some of the very good-hearted people but that they knew better than I knew. That the, the opinion just, you know, if a friend tells you something about somebody else, you trust the friend. That's just how life is. You know, you trust those you know. And I'm, I'm cool with that. I just think um, that time when I was questioning everything, that's just my nature. And I think that got a lot of people uh, quite angry. So I wrote um, two blogs. One was, is cryptozoology a cult? Just by the meaning of the way in which we, we might put a lot of faith into believing something in a certain way in a cult, like manner without questioning the the um the um the foundations of the belief and uh, or take cult like leaders word for it not to say that they're cult leaders but people that we uh, adore and admire and and look to for advice we, you know, all of us naturally as humans we we don't question them because they're the people advising us and giving us that sort of spiritual feeder pill again and the other um blog I wrote was um I don't think it's up there anymore but it was it was are we morons and it had um it had a picture of the um the the soup Nazi from Seinfeld on it no soup for you <laughs> yep <laughs> and uh, I just like it but it was basically saying before we go and take all of this stuff as read and this is coming from a person who really 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 wants it to be true me um look yourself in the mirror and ask yourself are we morons because if you can ask yourself that question and answer no to what you're looking at, then, you know, you're on good territory. So I think people were rightly, you know, not incorrectly, but understandably assuming that I was asking, saying, are they morons? Are they occult? But actually my way of researching is to question everything. And then that's especially kind of pointed in myself. And while I very 
often don't do because I'm just here writing it myself. And I, I usually don't believe that anybody's listening or watching to what I'm doing. Um, I don't think that anybody's reading it or listening to it. I just think, well, this is just what I think today because this is what I came up and I've been thinking about it. And this is the, the result of this research period or this interest, this period of introspect, uh, introspective and um, uh, uh, self-examining thought. This is what I've come up with. It's just what I feel right now. And it's what I discovered. So there it is. And then 20 people message me and say, what are you talking about? We're not a cult. (laughs) Um, That's not really, I'm not saying you're a cult. I'm just saying, is this, and objectively, and when you write these things, you don't realize that it can affect somebody else. And and it might come across as an accusation instead of, um, you know, just a a thought process, you know, are we a cult or are we not? A lot of people got it and just said, no, I don't think so. I think this is more about, you know, holding those guys up there like Hoovermans who've really did the work and um, Sanderson and saying those are the guys that are sort of um, our foundations in our scientific research and that's fair enough. You know, it's it's when I when I heard all about this and I've been following all the the attacks and and I follow your blog. Um, the problem you have is in this day and age in this society, no matter how old you are, and it's a shame because older people and older folk within you know in the forties and and a little bit older shouldn't be playing this game. Everybody's so hypersensitive to everything mm-hmm. you say. They take everything literally, and and it's and you cannot have a, a proper dialogue with anybody anymore on anything without them saying oh you're they attacked me no you know what you maybe you are an idiot maybe you are a moron if you're going to take everything we're saying and literally break down everything if we're going to hold people accountable for things they did mm-hmm. when they, in their teens and in the early years i mean yes. give, me, give me a break <clears throat> the, the, the bottom line is you should be questioning these things you should throw out all the hypothesis you can so because this is what this creature does every time i've noticed that i've gotten on to a certain point okay cool we're get, we're narrowing it down we're narrowing down mm-hmm. something else comes up and blows the door open again i'm like okay we're back to square one until you physically have a body we will not know and there are a variety of these different creatures everywhere but that being said you know i i mean it, it's just fascinating how the human mind thinks um i i appreciate the way you 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 conduct your investigations and your thought process oh thank you um you know uh, and and there are a lot of people out there too i uh, you have a, a lovely a, an amazing show that's on youtube um where you're interviewing a lot of these these uh famous individuals uh, based on on the cryptozoology type of stuff I and mean, meldrum was just on right if i if i'm correct i was one of the first ones him and Odysseytel. it was called beastly theories I only did 26 episodes it was and it, you know it's full of my my um my suspect editing um <laughs> and uh well anyway you know once the the music intro is over and the the, the slight sound issues are out of the way they're decent interviews and i tried to just let the interviewees speak because they had so much to tell us and they even have gary opit on there an right. australian cryptozoologist and zoologist who was a Found all the fountain of knowledge. It was amazing. You know, you knew so much about all these different Australian cryptids, and of course, it's a tiny scene over there. You know, there's just a handful of guys doing it in that country. Right. Yeah, it's a vast place. That's because everything in, and, the, in uh, the out country can kill you. <laughs> oh gosh, I mean, there's caterpillars that can make you feel like you want to die because they, you know, oh, one yeah. of their hairs gets oh, into yeah. you. It's just, it's an awful place. I mean, it's a beautiful place, of course, but everything does seem to want to kill you there. 
<laughs> that, that's, the people. that's the problem about it. You know, you go in the outback, and then the next thing you know, it's like, is that a, oh, look, a snail. Oh, I'm dead. Um, but unfortunately. I went somewhere that eight of the most, eight of the ten most poisonous snakes in the world are in Australia. Yep. I think that might be true. I might that be is, that is, that hat, is literally true. And I know, yes. I've seen the, actually, just go to the, go to Animal Planet or Discovery, and oh, um, yes. they have these shows on all the time. Unfortunately, speaking of time, we're running out yes. of the time um, oh, on this. But what I want to do is I want to get to, um, how can people get in touch with you? Where is, yes. where is, where is um, your, your, give your website address and the, about the movie, the Sticks and, um, the Sticks and Stones movie. Stones. Please, Tell okay. us where where people can see it or purchase it okay. because we want to so, drive people to you. Yes, thank you. So um, the best place to find me actually is on facebook.com forward slash beasts of. I'm there all the time. I do have a website, beastsofbritain.com. I'm not on it that often. It's just for people to contact me. I've got a book, Beasts of Britain on Amazon, and I'm writing my second book, Beasts of North America, right now, which will be out in the summer, June or July. Um in regards to where to see me, I'm not booked into any speaking engagements right now, but I am due to come back to the U.S. this year for several engagements, just waiting confirmation. So I should be joining you guys again very, very soon and, and looking forward to seeing the USA again. That would be great. And I, I, I definitely want to get him over to um, my neck of the woods for, for our hot spots because oh, I want you to really have an experience with this creature um, and, and understand, you know, you, I, I mean, I know you've been searching for us within the British Isles, but I want you to have an experience. So now you go, okay, I've had this experience. I may not be able to explain it, but now you have a little bit more of a basis to go on and it keeps you go. I mean, it's, it's literally like coffee. It just charges you up, but um, I, I would love that. Yes. Absolutely. And, and before we, yeah, before I head over to you, Ron, yeah. I just want to remind everybody we are on the spark radio network. So, and spark radio network is global. So um, just so you know, so inside the goblin universe is on spark radio network. And, and just another thing, too, Brian, I, I think that we could tell our, the, the fine folks out there about you and I uh, actually uh, signing on to uh, to uh, an agency as well, too. I think we can make that known, can't we? I, I, I don't know what, what, the, 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 what they're going to do for me, but yes, I know you're there, and um, we've... I've just sent back some information and I should be there too. And we're going to continue this and we're going to take it to the big screen and the little screen and the uh, portable screen. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, yeah. I'm actually excited for what's going on. Uh, and and I, I really am. And, and just, I, I give a quick shout out tomorrow being Valentine's day, you know, whenever people are going to be hearing this show. Um, look, if you have a significant other cherish that person, but if you are so inclined to cheat, do not use a lake monster as an excuse because that's the last thing we need to muddy the waters. Yes. Oh, I, have to, I have to tell you before you go, before you go, you asked what the oldest pub in Wales was, uh, how old it was, and it's called the King's Head in Landovery from the 1100s. Nice. See, there you go, guys. There you go. By the time the Vikings were up in Newfoundland, uh, we, there was people over there ordering uh, some mead. So put that in that's, perspective of, of how old this is. Well, that's where that's where we're all going to gather, all three of us, and that's where the show will start. Okay, <laughs> that's the episode. Right. We'll, be, we'll be having mead, <laughs> and we'll be admiring the pentagram on the wall uh, before we head out I to the to the, the Highlands. That's right, oh. and stay on the path. 
Yes. Yes. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Andy, uh, legitimately, yes. I, I tell this to everybody. You're one of my favorite human beings on this planet. Uh, I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, give your family uh, and your lovely wife a hug from uh, Brian and I, and uh, we'll have you on the, uh, the show again real soon. I, I cannot yes, wait. Yes, please. Me too. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. So I'm going to have to sign off. Yes. It's unfortunate that I have to sign off because, you know, we're back together. Um, and now we have to say goodbye after such an amazing interview like this. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I don't know what else to say besides having him on the show again. Oh, it's, you know what? Andy is one of my favorite people on the planet. And I am thankful every day for, for our, our friendship and being able to connect. I think it's it's more than just, uh, you know, chance. Is there? It, this is supposed to happen, and we're going to go further and far with this. And it's just a wonderful experience. Absolutely. So what I will do now is I will bid adieu to all of our little goblins out there listening. And I will say, you know, thanks for coming down the rabbit hole with us tonight. I am Ron Murphy. I'm Brian Bowden. And perfect. See, that's the way, Brian, that's the way it's supposed to work. That's the way it <laughs> used to work a year and a half ago when we were on the show all together. So let's try to do this again for old time's sake. So thanks, Goblins, for going down the rabbit hole with me. My name is Ron Murphy. I am Sir Brian Bowden. Absolutely. There you go. Hey, until next time, thanks for joining Andy McGrath inside the Goblin Universe. Hey, this is Brian Bowden. I want to extend a deep thanks to Purple Planet. You guys rock. Hey, everyone. I'm Kat Ward, host of Paranormal Heart, your monthly paranormal podcast. Join me the last Sunday of every month as I speak to people who share their paranormal experiences. You can follow me on Podbean, YouTube, TuneIn, iTunes, Spotify, and Paranormal Radio. If you're looking for a beautiful piece of stoneware pottery, check out Nodakian Studios at etsy.com forward slash shop forward slash Nodakian Studio. And also check her out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Nodakian Studios, where you can see updates as well as giveaways when they come available. Go check it out. There are spirits everywhere. Watching, waiting, seeking that opportune time to reveal themselves like no other. They fill our worlds with so much. Seriously? You didn't just do that. You farted on the promo? What's wrong with you? I thought you were professional. G- go away. Go- I-, I got it. I got it. Hey everybody, it's Brian Bowden, host of Nobo Boomy, where we explore deep inside the Goblin universe. We have an amazing show that covers the paranormal, conspiracies, music, art, entertainment, trending topics, and so much more. Please join us by subscribing to the show on Podbean at InsideTheGoblinUniverse.Podbean.com, on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, and everywhere you find podcasts. It's an informative, fun, and overall entertaining good time, and uh, we'll keep the gas to ourselves. Why don't you burp next time? Somebody give me Brian Anderson.